Yes, to answer your question, yes, this is probably the first time a Persian-American actor has actually tackled the role. This is a, a Persian hero. You are listening to the official podcast of the Horrible Imaginings Film Festival, where we brought an analysis of stigmatized creative expression in film, art, and literature to understand the misunderstood. Your host is Miguel Rodriguez. Oh, passengers, may God preserve you. Run for your lives. Leave your gear. Hurry back to the ship to save yourselves from destruction. For this island where you are is... Not really an island, but a great fish that has settled in the middle of the sea. And the sand has accumulated on it, making it look like an island, and the trees have grown on it a long time. When you lighted the fire on it, it felt the heat and began to move, and it will soon descend with you into the sea, and you will all drown. Save yourselves before you perish. When the passengers heard the captain's warning, they hurried to get into the ship, leaving behind their wood stoves, copper cooking pots, and other gear together with their goods. Some made it to the ship, but some did not. The island had moved and sunk to the bottom of the sea, and with everything that was on it. The roaring sea with its clashing waves closed over it. I, being one of those left behind on the island, sank in the sea with those who sank. But God the Almighty saved me from drowning and provided me with a large wooden tub that the passengers had been using for washing. I held onto it for dear life, got on it, and began to paddle with my feet while the waves tossed me to the right and left. Meanwhile, the captain spread the sails and pursued his voyage with those who had made it to the ship without regard for those who were drowning. I kept looking at the ship until it disappeared from my sight, and as night descended I became sure of perdition. I remained in this condition for a day and a night, but with the help of the wind and the waves, the tub landed me under a high island with trees overhanging the water. I seized a branch of a tall tree, clung to it after I had been on the verge of death, and climbed it to the land. I found my feet numb, and my soles bore the marks of the nibbling fish, something of which I had been unaware because of my extreme exhaustion and distress. What you just heard is a brief excerpt from the first voyage of Sinbad, or Sanbat. Sinbad is most widely known as the heroic captain of his ship, but his first voyage details his youthful foolishness before having to rebuild his family's wealth. Just like losing the ship where he was a passenger and having to make do with a wooden washtub, the young Sinbad had squandered the inheritance left to him by his father. The famed voyages of Sinbad are stories of reclaiming and keeping former greatness. In the story's framing device, he relates his tales to his poor porter, who happens to share his name. This excerpt I just read was from the wonderful translation by Hussein Hadawi, a Baghdad-born literature scholar. You can find this in his second volume of the Arabian Nights books, Many people who even think of looking up the original Sinbad stories can find them in various translations of what is commonly known as A Thousand and One Nights or The Arabian Nights. These stories are ancient enough to have been transmuted through time and adaptation by other cultures, so Hadawi's translations attempt to preserve the texts as closely as possible 
to how they were originally composed. No mean feat. For that reason, you will hear no mention of some of the most famous characters, like Sinbad, Aladdin, or Alibaba, in his excellent The Arabian Nights text, and we'll have to look for them in The Arabian Nights 2, Sinbad and Other Popular Stories. From his introduction of that second text, his intention of the second volume is to, and I'm paraphrasing here, undo the omissions, transformations, and additions that were forced upon these classic stories by other countries, other cultures, and of course, later years. As an interesting note to the listeners of this show, Mr. Hadawi does relate the oral storytelling of the Arabian Nights from his great-uncle to what he called the occasional main event of storytelling when films like King Kong or Flash Gordon episodes would show in Baghdad when he was a child. That childhood sense of wonder and the fantastic is what drove him to become a scholar and give us some of the best English-language versions of these stories available. Again, from his introduction of the second volume. The genius of the knights and the secret of their appeal lie in their reconciliation of opposites. They interweave the unusual, the extraordinary, the marvelous, and the supernatural into the fabric of everyday life, in which both the usual incidents and the extraordinary coincidences are but the warp and weft of divine providence, a fabric in which the sacred and profane meet. These stories are both familiar and mysterious, universal and otherworldly, and they have a long influence on Western culture. They have been translated, adapted into comics and films, revisited time and time again. And now a very new film production company has made their own version. Just as the original stories had layers of meaning, I find this new film interesting for layered reasons. The first layer is it attempts to provide a Sinbad who isn't whitewashed. A Persian character is written and played by a Persian man. They even take some pains to pronounce the character's name correctly. So this is an appeal to the original place these stories came from. The second layer is that it not only appeals to the original land of the stories, but it also pays homage to the films that made Sinbad really popular with kids here in America. You know the ones I'm talking about the ones that featured creature effects by the legendary Ray Harryhausen. Yes, this new film even uses the Harryhausen stop-motion technique to bring its various monsters to life. It's good to see that technique implemented as late as 2014, a return to form. This is the second film from the production company, Giant Flick Pictures, and it is extremely low budget, and it does have some of the feels of a second film. But there's a lot of heart in the production. It's worth watching for fans of adventure, traditional effects techniques, people curious about Sinbad, or experimental film projects in general. The film will be available on VOD starting on December 2nd for anyone who's interested, or um, anyone who wants to enjoy a good old-fashioned film with their kids, because this is a family-friendly film in the traditional Harryhausen monster movie fashion. I wanted to get into the head of the writer, producer, director, and star of this new film, which is called Sinbad the Fifth Voyage, to see what went into the filming. And because he took pains to pronounce Sinbad, or like I said earlier, Sanbad's name correctly in the film, I decided to start the interview by asking him about pronouncing his own name. It's 
Shaheen, Sean, Soleiman. Well, I, I love that we're starting off this way because I was going to have you talk about, you know, some of your background, but let's actually start with this quick thing that I'm immediately curious about with your new project. And that is the the pronunciation of your protect your lead character's name, so you'll be able to say who the character of your project is. And uh, I want you to talk to me a little bit about the origins of the name and the pronunciation, because both of those things really excite me about your film. Is what I presume to be the appropriate pronunciation of such a really popular, you know, what has become a kind of Americanized pop culture figure. Yes, I totally agree. And what's funny is on the set, I essentially insisted everyone say it correctly, which is actually Sanbad. And, and Sanbad is really, a, a, the meaning of it is, well, bad means wind, like to sail into the wind. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's where the word comes from. It's, it, it means wind, really. It means like a powerful wind. It's a very ancient mythological character. And it's awesome. I, I just was... So amazed that um, I had an opportunity to uh, explore this character and the story uh, and bring it the way we did. I just, I'm very excited about it. I'm sorry. Can you pronounce the name of the character again? Uh, Sanbad. Sanbad. I'm going to do my best to say it like that. <laughs> Go ahead. And that, that is eliminating almost 40 <laughs> years of, <laughs> of, of mispronunciation. I got it. That's tell you. funny, isn't it? The Western <laughs> culture, but Western culture, we, we all live uh, in Western culture and they, uh, it does tend to change uh, and morph words to make it easier. It's just even, even the Brits sometimes pronounce it correctly, but the U.S. mainly kind of like abbreviates and makes things a little bit easier to pronounce. But yes, it's definitely called uh, Sanbad, which is, of course, Sinbad. Uh, I think they both sound kind of cool. They both have character to, to the pronunciation. But I like to say, like in the film, uh, we try to use Sanbad as much as possible with all the actors. Everyone was like, Sanbad, I know what you're, you know, like everyone was pronouncing it correctly, which was really awesome. It's the first thing I noticed because I was like, oh, wait. And I caught that. I was like, that's got to be the real pronunciation. <laughs> and, uh, and I love that. Cool. I'm glad you got that. <laughs> that was important to me. The title is San. So, for for anyone who who's listening, we're talking about the character that you probably recognize more readily as Sinbad, from, of course, you know, we've got Golden Voyage of Sinbad and and various various incarnations throughout the years, not just films but comics and stories. And uh, this is one of the. It's like Alibaba or or Hercules. Right. You know, one one of the real original superheroes right sanbat yep there you go perfect the fifth voyage correct all right i want to talk about where some of the story elements came from but i really wanted to get talk about the name first and foremost and that kind of leads me into the next thing i want to talk about it's all the same thing when i first heard about this project that there was going to be another film with this character your big name in it is your narrator patrick stewart right so that's that's awesome. However, I got to say, when I first heard that, I was a little reticent because one thing that happens is whenever you have stories taking place, especially in America, films taking place in ancient Greece or, or Prince of Persia, right? Right. People are like, well, how should these people talk? Well, obviously, they all have British accents, you know, <laughs> which makes no sense at all. But then I looked more into it and I was like, oh, wow, this actually has a pretty heavy 
Persian cast. And then, of course, the way they were pronouncing the name of the character was really interesting to me. So what I want you to talk about is, you know, most people in the film world know Sinbad or Sanbat from Ray Harryhausen films, played by John Philip Law, (laughs) (laughs) Kerwin Matthews. And, And of course, there's even that bizarre 1989 version with Lou Ferrigno. Ah, yes. Um. <laughs> yes. It's a, it all feeds into the whole tradition of the way they made uh, movies uh, throughout the years. Like uh, in the 50s and 60s, they would just take any leading man who was handsome and they would be like, okay, you're Tarzan or you're Sinbad. Yes. <laughs> and that's why a lot of times that's part of the whole classic movie, which I love. I'm a big fan of those movies. And uh, mm-hmm. it's just part of the way things have evolved since then. Now it's getting more and more serious and people are uh, like tuning in to like, hey, that guy, that guy's got long blonde hair. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Or like, or, for example, or startlingly I'm, blue eyes. <laughs> right, right. And like, okay, like, and they're, they're, you know, they just are speaking like perfect English. There's no accent anywhere. So nowadays I think it's become, at least I like to uh, make films that have authenticity to, to a point where you can kind of like imagine what uh, what that world would be like, kind of, you know, at least get a little bit of a insight. That's why, one of the reasons why playing the character, uh, which was amazing uh, to be able to have an opportunity to portray that character being Persian. That's one of the reasons why I didn't go into the weight room and concentrate on building my body to a point where it looks like, you know, like a weightlifter, because I don't think Sinbad would look like a weightlifter. I've seen a couple of different versions and some of them have guys that are like, their, their muscles are like, wait, I mean, it's, I could see that in like some movies, but you can't have, you know, a guy who's sailing in the ocean, he's not going to be bench pressing 300 pounds. It's just yeah. it's not going to happen. They're going to be athletic and acrobatic, which is what I ended up, uh, you know, portraying the character like, which I love. I, I thought it hit it right on the money as far as everything like that went. But yes, to answer your question, yes, this is probably the first time a Persian American actor has actually tackled the role. This is a, a Persian hero. Yes, basically it's part of, uh, well... Uh, Persia, back in the day, or I should say back in the century, <laughs> half the globe, that entire region was Persia, the Persian Empire, as everybody yes. knows. What's now like, Iran now. Yeah. Right, which is Iran. and But but Persia went all the way through the entire Middle East and the entire Asian demographics there. You know, like the entire region geographically was called Persia. And those stories were like one of the most famous, the Arabian Nights that, that come from that region. Mm-hmm. So it was just amazing that I had an opportunity to, to create this project for the fans. Obviously, it was really important for you to play the lead character being of Persian descent yourself. What about some of the secondary characters around you? Was that, when you're doing casting calls, was mm-hmm. that something you were specifically looking for? No, not at all. Because if you watch, we, well, we were trying to also send back a little bit of a homage to the 60s and 70s. That's why we did the stop animation. And, oh, yeah. And I'm sure you're going to ask me about that. But Of course. <laughs> <laughs> but if you if you watch those, you'll see like an African American fella, you'll mm-hmm. see like an Asian fella, you'll see like a like total Caucasian girl, you see like a like the different race, and I thought that was amazing. I, I actually like that. I just don't like the fact that the lead character would be like some you know like John Wayne's son, Pat, Patrick <laughs> yeah, Wayne, I believe. Patrick Wayne, that's correct. Uh, yeah. Although it worked for that time. I mean, those movies were were successful movies, and they still are. I mean, everyone still buys those DVDs. That's that's crazy cool, man. I love that. Yeah. Uh, but I just thought if we have the main character be authentic and then we can kind of touch on the original historical value of putting in the different races. And I thought that would be cool for internationally. People can enjoy the film seeing all these different races. So it's not all just one race. You know what I mean? I like that. I think that's cool. Like 
kind of like they did with the Matrix. If you watch the Matrix movies, you have a lot of different backgrounds, a lot of different races, which was awesome to do. Well, and also, even historically, if you think about the life of people on the open seas, their whole lives were basically merchants, you know? Yes, yes. And different ports, and that would happen. They yes. Would take on work from different ports of call. So, yes. Yeah, it would look like that. And actually, I'll give you a little uh, information on that region. Iran actually has an entire African, well, they're not African-American, but I guess you can call them African-Persian. It's just amazing. It's like... Whoa, I did not know these guys are Persian. So that region did have that and also Asians. There's a lot of areas where there's people that look like Asians there. And it's just really cool. It's a very unique area uh, of the world, actually, that a lot of people just don't know about, obviously. Well, because it just, I mean, that was the wellspring of civilization for a while. Yes, yes, exactly. It's all remnants of that, right? Yes, and it's really cool to have these guys all on board the ship and all these act- wonderful actors that I got a chance to work with. Mm-hmm. And we kind of tried to keep the looks uh, kind of like they did back th- back then so that we can essentially give that a little bit of a remembrance, you know, just so that people can kind of say, oh, yeah, that's what they kind of look like. <laughs> well, since you already mentioned it, I think we'll segue into uh, some of your choices in terms of paying homage to uh, obvious. The obvious answer is, of course, Ray. Harryhausen, who did the special effects on on a couple of uh, yes. films. I'll back up even a little bit. All right, I always have I have to have some respect for what I I view as audacity. <laughs> and what I mean by that, it, I, I think it it takes some sheer audacity to decide to make a film on an epic scope with large otherworldly visions, but it's not a two hundred million dollar monster thing you know right right as they weren't as they weren't in the 50s and 60s they they weren't 200 million dollar they were essentially independent experimental films back then as well right and and that takes some audacity right so it's not like oh we don't have any money so we'll just have it be my dinner with andre (laughs) it's we don't have any money but (laughs) damn it we're still gonna have a guy fighting monsters on the seven seas see now if you gave me andre the giant and uh (laughs) you know rest in peace but if you had given me i wouldn't make my dinner with uh, andre i would have probably made a really kick-ass monster movie yeah starring him because i mean the guy was uh, eight feet tall so you know you have to use that like essentially what, what I personally did was, and, and everyone else can do this as well, um, I love to give out info so that people can follow their dreams in this, in this uh, business if they want to. I did what a lot of directors do, which is, I, well, I started off with reading Rebel Without a Crew by Robert Rodriguez. Oh, yeah. And I got really inspired uh, by that because it's a yes. It's a yes world. It's not a no world. Because what you hear constantly when you go the traditional route is a no world. You get people telling you no, like... All my friends will tell you I'm just the wrong person to say no to because, you know, uh, not to compare myself to a super athlete like Michael Jordan, but when they told him no, he ended up being the the greatest basketball player that ever lived when he, when he was a kid. So same goes uh, for myself. I just don't like when people say no, you can't do that. Okay, well then you know, see you later. So <laughs> reading that book got me really inspired. That's a very good yes book if anybody wants to get excited about making movies and doesn't want to you know have, worry about hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, reading that book uh, really helped me, and I actually read it a couple times. I enjoyed it. I let it soak in. I ended up going to the same film workshop that, that those guys went to, Robert Rodriguez, Quentin Tarantino, uh, with Dove Simmons at the Hollywood Film Institute, and uh, here we are. I ended up making the film, and you come up with ways to make things happen, you know? Like, people see pictures of sets on, of, like, 
Warner Brothers pictures, but what a lot of people don't realize is that's that's a that's a corporate environment. Those guys are like not there like, hey, we're having a good time making a cool film. They're like, dude, your job is to stand there and make sure the light is at like 15 degrees the entire time on this actor. Like it's very corporate, you know, mm -hmm. and there's guys with suits walking around making sure that that's what's happening. So that's not the only way to make a movie. In fact, sometimes it's very restrictive. And then they have $200 million worth of advertising and they have like massive funds to come up with guys that will create, you know, everything, make everything look really beautiful. And they do, and it's amazing. And I'm a big fan. But what I'm trying to say is, if someone wants to make a movie like I did, a fantasy, big, you know, lofty type movie, if there's a will, there's a way, you know? Um, there's just... You don't need a guy, 15 guys, to stand there and hold a light. You can, you can get, you know, you buy a light from Home Depot, put a mm -hmm. diffuse on it, and for five bucks and hold it. We didn't do that, and we had real lights, but I'm just saying, <laughs> but uh, you can. I don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> was the person who was saying no, mm -hmm. was that ever you? Did you ever have uh, to tell yourself? Yes. No, I never say I, I never say no. I just figure out I'm I'm very fluid in my mm -hmm. thoughts when I want to achieve something. I never say no and I forget about it. I'll I'll say, okay, like how can we make this happen? Like how can we make the ship? And you know, I believe in the universe, uh, and the universe will bring you the things that you desire. And you know, I just kind of like essentially manifested the ship. We just kind of got our hands on it. We got lucky. And the ship is not your everyday ship. That is a huge ship, like a real ship. It wasn't like a CGI ship, right. although in some shots it is. In fact, not only did we get the ship, but we got the ship from the same place that they have the Pirates of the Caribbean ship. So we're actually cousins of theirs. Oh, that's uh, awesome. I actually saw the, the a couple of those, the HR Surprise, uh, HM, HMR Surprise, I think it's called. That's the British ship and the first one that, that destroys Jack Sparrow's ship. We used from the same lot of ships. We, we picked the one that essentially resembled the Middle Eastern Sinbad style ship right. uh, and uh, was a lovely crew. To, to, to uh, navigate that for us and having me actually essentially steering the ship and helicopters on top. Just the whole thing was manifested and we, we ended up making it like ultra, ultra like high, high quality. It's amazing to me that you actually took a ship on water and, and had helicopters at your disposal. Yeah, um. <laughs> helicopters and other ships next to us that with cameras uh, mounted on, on each. It was all planned, you know, or being organized, there's no excuse for that. You can't say, well, I'm an indie filmmaker. I'm going to be just, I'm just going to do it. No, you got to be organized. Actually, you have to be more organized than, than the, the, the next guy because there's no way to pull it off because your mind gets scattered. It's such a collaborative medium and you, you're clearly someone who is willing to just jump right in and go for it. But can you talk also about some of the challenges of getting a crew to buy into your vision for this? Well, it wasn't hard because... Everything always starts with what's on paper, the script. Mm -hmm. So I uh, honestly, it took us a long time. I, I wrote the script and then I brought in Evelyn Gabay to help round out the script to make sure it's you know professional. She she's a seasoned veteran writer and uh, she knew essentially all the little things that needed a little bit touch up on. But it took me a year or nine months to write the script and I rewrote it about uh, ten times. Mm -hmm. I'm the kind of person that I'm not going to just sit there with a script in my hand. I'm going to get drawings done because I'm excited. I want to see this. I'm a visual person, right? So I'm not going to just sit there with a script. In my That's a lot of mistake a lot of people make is they run around with a script in their hand. But essentially, most people that read scripts, they're like, they see a million scripts. They just see like their letters on mm -hmm. white paper, you know, or like a PDF file. Like who wants to go through all that? I'd rather see some vision. Like what, what's your vision? Like what does it look like? 
Even George Lucas had McCrary do all those really cool badass concept art before the movie was ever even, before the script was done even, I think. Yeah, before it was pitched, there was lots of artwork done. Mm-hmm. Right, because he's a visionary guy. He's, uh, you know, he's, he, he, we want to see, because we were doing it for ourselves first. Like, we want to see the film. Like, I want to see, I want to sit in a theater and I want to see the film. So uh, you start to want to see what those images would look like. So even if you sketch it yourself, I started sketching the rock bird, to be honest. That's like the first thing I did. I have a, the shot of the rock bird coming and attacking the crew i kind of hand drew that myself in my sketchbook then from there like other bunch of other people came on board and they were all excited slowly but surely just amazing talented people just appeared because i'm a a producer and because i'm a director and a writer and i do those things and i love doing it i don't like to place myself in any kind of role where like someone else could do a better job so what i always do i make it the most difficult for myself i will do a screen test I will go through all the rigors that it takes to do a screen test. I will have other people look at it. I will even let the fans decide. We shot our, I don't know if you've seen our very first trailer where it's just me walking in a city and then it shows a Cyclops roar at the end. Have you seen yeah, that? Yeah, I did. I did in preparation for talking to you. Yeah. Oh, okay. That one, and, and it's like a little countdown and then it's Patrick. Okay, so that was done before we even finished the script. Patrick's lines, and that was done before we even finished the script. And I wanted to get the fans something to look at. So we said, you know what, this looks essentially, this, it was a screen test. And the guys were like, man, this looks really good. You got to put this out there. Yeah. And then my stop animation guys were already on board. And they're like, hey, let me just do one shot of the Cyclops. And we're like, you know what, this looks pretty badass. Like, we got to put this out there. We got like 600,000 views. People started copying it. People started like, just everyone went crazy. In fact, I had one fan email us. He was like, I just wanted to let you know that uh, I have to watch this teaser every day before I go to work. <laughs> it was like his coffee. And I was like, wow, I guess they approve. So let's do this. There's a lot of intense work that goes behind getting everyone involved. So once that happened, everybody just, because n- the rest of the cast were not casted. They were all just tripping over themselves, wanting to be involved. So that's how you want to do it. You know, you don't want to have to sell too much because you want to put your energy towards actually making the project. I just read an interview today or, or maybe it was an article with David. David Lynch talking about how important it was that your creative team is kind of simpatico with you on your vision. Oh, big time. There's no way to express like how important that is because what happens then actually in any business, not just for filmmaking, any business, Mm -hmm. like if you hire a bunch of people who are just looking for a paycheck or they're just looking for credits, then they got to go because those people are going to be the people that are not going to want to, they're not, they don't believe in it. They're suddenly tired. They need this. They need that. So, and it's fine if they want to be like that. It's a free world. But if you're going to be involved in my project, mm-hmm. I'm sure those guys are probably even tougher. You know, those directors are not, they're tough guys because they want to get their work done. And I can totally see what they're saying. Someone is not on the same page and they are going to probably cause problems. My personal philosophy is I talk to them and I can tell if they're, if they're excited, especially key people. Can't control everybody, but key people that are around me, if they're not excited, then I just excuse them. I'm sorry. This is not that kind of a show where we're just going to have, you know, just not, we don't have that. We're not Universal Studios. You know, we're, gi- <laughs> we're giant flick films. And movies, if you're in the movie industry and you're not excited, you need to find another business because it's hard work. Yeah, you have to love it, right? Yeah, it's like any business. I mean, we like you're doing your business. You're you're doing this because you love you love what you do, and it's awesome. I can tell. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, we're I all this because we have something to give. And uh, honestly, like I said, the universe picks that up. One of the th- philosophies I have, and I post this every once in a while when I can, is I'll put like little formulas, like simple simple formulas such as consistency plus love 
plus energy or whatever blah, 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 equals like success. It's like basically that's what it is. If you don't have one of those, you're not going to be successful at what you do and you're going to be miserable. And you don't want to carry that into like somebody else's set because he, that makes things a lot, a lot stressful for everybody else as well. I will say one last thing on that. My key people were all amazing. Guys like Mark Sullivan, Ron Cole, these guys are all the guys that handled the, the uh, heavy duty lifting on the animation stuff. These guys were just amazing. And also the special effects CGI guys, the guys at the top were all very excited. The cast, the crew, so I didn't, didn't really have, I mean, I'm sure if I looked hard enough, I could find a couple of bad apples in there, but <laughs> honestly, uh, I'm the kind of person that does not dwell on that and I don't see it. It just kind of dissipates. Uh, if there was any bad apples, I don't even remember them. I just wish them the best, and uh, I don't even re remember those thoughts. I just remember we finished the film and we kicked ass. <laughs> it is finished. That's more than a lot of people can say. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Especially on a project like this. So uh, let's go ahead and move on then to okay. your special effects team and, and the question you knew I was probably going to ask, which which is your decision to kind of go with a more traditional route. Uh, when when the idea first hit you, it was like, you know what, I want to do this kind of epic with these classic characters. Did you know right off the bat that you wanted the stop motion Ray Harryhausen kind of style. Yes, I did. Yes, Excellent. I did. Uh, that was the plan from the very beginning. What I'm interested in is for your take on how you think that style fits the fantasy element that you're going for. Mm -hmm. And then I also want to talk about when you were writing the story to begin with, how much did you go to the traditional mythology and how did you decide which creatures you were going to put into this? Oh, yeah, that's a good question. Well, um, I essentially wrote the, a chronological order, like a flowchart. Mm -hmm. And in the flowchart, uh, which uh, flowcharts are awesome for films because you essentially putting the sequences in order. You can interchange them and see what fits best. So I, I built a flowchart. And in the flowchart, I knew what creatures I wanted because I wanted to see the Cyclops. I wanted to see the six-armed creature. I wanted to see the rock bird. These are all in the legendary Arabian Nights books. And I also uh, tweaked the story because, let's face it, these stories were written thousands of years ago. Okay? Mm -hmm. And they're not going to be exciting to us now because they, they didn't have all the technology that we have now. And they didn't have all the imagination. They were like just probably fighting to survive. So they're not super duper, which is probably why you don't see too many of them. Um, so I kind of put my own spin on it. I, I like being creative and I like twisting things and changing things. So I adjusted the story to, to a point where it's simple yet has lots of creatures and has fun stuff for people to watch. And also... There's some things in there, the nuances and experiments that I put in there as a director that I wanted to see because I believe in pushing the envelope a little bit. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I don't know if everyone appreciates that, but I did those. Everything you see on the film is done on purpose, and I feel like it's a beautiful film. <laughs> <laughs> as a huge fan of traditional effects and the stop motion, I, I, I really think that the stop motion lends itself to the fantasy element in a kind of almost uns way that's hard to, to put into words, you know? I, yes. Yes, I, I feel what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. Uh, was that something that was part of your thought process when deciding to have, how to go yes. forward? Yes, it, it was definitely a vision of mine mm -hmm. to make this film something that you would see in the 60s and 70s. And with the whole the visual effects the way they are, they're designed to, to, to not be like you would see on the Transformers, but something you would see <laughs> back then. I mean, the story is a really cool, old-fashioned, good versus bad 
simple story and it doesn't have like excessive amounts of, of things to, to like, oh my God, like how many, how much more of this sequence are we going to see with the like, you know, with this and with the action and this and that. So we kind of made the story simple, fun, Sinbad movie. <laughs> yeah, kind of, it, it is reminiscent of uh, an adventure swashbuckler from even as late as the early 80s, you know, where it was just kind of, you could almost say like a family adventure film. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. And you know what? Uh, everyone that sat through it from begin, even even at the rough cut, everyone who's seen it from beginning to end, you know, gets up when the credits are rolling, always has a smile on their face. They just love they just love it because there's a message in there that they pick up subliminally. I believe in putting in messages as well. I don't believe in like just making a picture just just to like have some visuals in there to give someone like a little eye candy and then they can get up and leave. It's more like, hey, also keep in mind that there's like there's this message in this film and I hope that inspires you. I think any good director does that. Somehow you leave their movies, you somehow like are thinking about their movies, you're when you go to sleep you're still thinking about it, you're talking about it with your friends at work, you know, it's you know, th- that's the kind of films I like to make. If I were to ask you, what is one thing that you would want someone to leave the film thinking, what would it be? I would say they should be thinking nothing is more powerful than the motivated heart. Sinbad, uh, uh, give me his pronunciation again. <laughs> Sanbad. Sanbad, yes. He, he's, always, he's definitely a motivated character. You wrote it and produced it and directed it and acted in it, correct? Y- yes, but... <laughs> But just to clarify, I don't want to be taking anybody's credit. Correct. I did what I could do with, with, the, with what I had to offer, but there's 300 other people that gave their, their late nights and their early mornings to this film, and I'm very, uh, you know, I'm graciously going to thank them and just say that I appreciate them. There's so many of them. Uh, they're on the credits. But uh, I had a lot of help. You need, you can't do it by yourself. I mean, I can't be holding the camera, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, and run, run around back in front of the camera. But so no, we had like my my uh, DP Roger Mende. His energy was just so good, and he was so experienced, and just so like, like I would say, hey Roger, like here's something that no one knows. Uh, like I, we would be shooting, and then we would because I knew the story inside and out, and I knew what the character was, and I'm directing. It would go faster because I would know what you know where we're at. So I would I, w- I would know as a director like okay we're good let's move to the next shot. But then I would take breaks while they would be setting up for the next shot. And then uh, on my breaks sometimes Roger my DP uh, would come out and talk to me and I would always ask him because he's he's a veteran himself. Yeah. He would always say wonderful things like he would hey this is looking really good and he would say like stuff like you know your character is just coming through it's really good you're doing like this is. I mean, I've been on, he's like, I'm not bullshitting you or I'm not saying this to, to just like, because we're doing this already no matter what. But I want to tell you that like your character is really good and it's coming through really well through with the camera. And those things really motivated me. So you need that, you know, you need good. And I had that with everybody. Everybody was excited. There was, in fact, some people were so excited, they would be scared. Like they were scared. Like at the beginning, people were scared. They're like, Okay, we are an independent crew, okay, <laughs> and we are shooting a mythological movie that hasn't been done in over 50 years. What, like, are we really doing this? And I'm the kind of person I would be like, guys, turn on the cameras, <laughs> turn yeah. on the cameras. Okay, everybody in place. Like my my uh, assistant director would be like, okay, everybody get in place, everybody get in place. And then I would be like, okay, come on, let's have some fun with this. This is not what you think. It's just like let's let's just let's have some fun and let's see. We, we're not gonna know what we have unless we shoot. So at, at first there was a lot of fear but once everyone got comfortable it was like a super ride it was fun lots of laughs 
In fact, I, I can tell you this, there will be some great additional stuff coming on the Blu-ray, the DVD, and some of the other outlets that are releasing the film next week. They, there will be some, some of that in there. And there's also a bonus sequence that we will be releasing uh, along with, with the DVD, most likely. I just want to thank everybody that was involved. On that note, and to wrap things up, can you uh, just give a, pl a place on the web where we could find your credits? Um, and uh, well, I guess a web website for the film itself. And uh, and you know what everybody's what you're working on now. What's what's next? I am working on a a couple of new movies. Uh, one of them is a time travel movie uh, called The Time Machine. Um, that one will, uh, it's a gritty, dark kind of a time machine movie. It's uh, not in any way. What it's you not would like think. the H.G. Wells story. <laughs> um, the H.G. Wells story is a great story, but no, it's, it's a great story. Uh, but no, it's not the H.G. Wells story because, you know, everyone has already seen that. And, yeah. like, you know, and they, it, I think his, one of his heirs, I believe, directed the one, the last one with Guy Pierce. So That's right. Yeah, we wouldn't want to do that because I just don't think. But we have our own time time travel piece. But I can tell you that it will be reminiscent uh, and retro style, uh, not reminiscent of H.G. Wells, but it will have the fantastic type stuff that you would expect to see. <laughs> and we will most likely be implementing the same technology we did with Sinbad, if not better, uh, because we're obviously a growing company and we're a startup and we are going to advance and uh, very quickly. And I'm also really excited to say that I will most likely be doing Alibaba and the 40 Thieves as oh, well. So There you go. Uh, yes, so those are two projects that are in the works. And then there's one more that I don't want to mention because I think there should be some secrets as well so that people can kind of like <laughs> get surprised when they find out about it. I can tell you that they're all going to be in the realm that everyone likes with what we did with Sinbad. It'll be in that realm of stuff because I love that stuff and I'm not a big fan of the ultra weird type high high CGI mm -hmm. type situations I'm not a big fan uh, I, I love movies and I will I think every movie has something to offer uh, but I, I feel like we also have something to bring to the table that will essentially enhance everybody else's as well because it's bringing more material for the audience to enjoy and it's just amazing time right now for movies like there's so many places that you can uh, get movies so they need to they need product so that's what we're here for you know well, that's what we're all trained for yeah and i think as a final thought i think uh regarding some of the traditional filmmaking techniques and, and fantasy elements that you have like stop motion it's really nice when filmmakers see those things as as artistic methods for telling a story and not just old hat that needs to die. You know, I'd like to see these things kept alive in some form. Yes, and exactly. I, yeah, that's what I that's what I really enjoy. Right. And you know what? I'll add one small thing to that. It's also very important that people realize and I think a lot of filmmakers should uh, realize, as this, uh, realize this as well and possibly implement this or at least know it. Somebody asked me, we're doing so much work. Like one of the guys on, on the film, on the post-production side, mm -hmm. said, like, what are we doing? Like, this is so much work. Like, because you get like that. Every, every, every filmmaker will tell you there's times when you're like, what the hell are we doing here, man? This is like, <laughs> this is so much work. How, much, how, how many hours can we sit? Like working on these shots, there is there is the, the silver lining and and the the end result obviously the satisfaction of of completing it is ultra. It's like being in a zone uh, on the field or you know in a game if you're an athlete. Uh, it's that feeling of like or it's like graduating from college. Really, when you finish the film, it's almost like graduating from college. So, but the the main thing I was going to say was we are also doing something very special that a lot of people don't realize, which is we are inspiring the youths 
who think everything is possible. I mean, when you get to be an adult, you start to see how lame the world can be. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when you're a child, you don't see that because you're watching movies and you're and there's so many good ones that you essentially are like inspired. Like, you know, someone can be like, hey, look at this guy. He looks like me. And he's forget about the movie itself. For example, I don't know, like any movie that's got science involved, like like Interstellar, for example. Yeah. Someone can be like, you know what? I'm going to do that. And he, the guy could be like six years old. And then it's been implanted in his head because if you go if you go to NASA right now, and this is very important, you will see all the Star Trek names on all the ships. Oh all, yeah, and some of the guys call themselves. Some of the guys look like Star Trek. <laughs> Star Trek. I mean, they have the pointy ears and everything to go with it, and their hairstyles and everything. It's because they were fans. They were they were Star Star Trek fans, and they after school they would come home like myself and watch those movies. And now they're like there's like a you know mission to Mars now. There's like a mission to like. You know, there's like a rover on Mars, and it's basically all from Star Trek. So yeah. uh, we're inspiring the future of the planet, and it's very important that every filmmaker takes that very seriously and instill cool messages in their films, no matter what it is. Not like boring stuff, but just to keep keep up the good work, but just keep in mind that you're inspiring. So that's why I like to do these kind of films, because these are very inspiring films. Probably your effects artists watched Harryhausen films, and that's kind of what got them on the path they're on. Yes, they were all, and I just want to also say that Ray Harryhausen, uh, may he rest in peace, um, I'm sad that he was never able to see the film fully completed, mm-hmm. but I will say that his representatives did contact me uh, halfway through the post-production when they had seen all those trailers, and they were very excited, they're very nice people, they're the good guys, and they're just very sweet about it, and they uh, actually did offer, uh, they did say that Ray knew about the project and he was excited about it. And that he, they even asked us, you know, would we be interested in any kind of like concept art of his? Oh my and, God. And yeah, that would have been amazing. But, you know, Ray was over 90 years old. So, yeah. Um, a little bit of, I guess, uh, wrong timing. Uh, so we never got to materialize that. But uh, I'm excited to say that he did know about it. And we even did a little birthday for his last birthday. Mm-hmm. We, the guys wanted to do a little birthday animation for him. And we did that. Like this was at the beginning of of post production. And uh, is that we, available on YouTube? Uh, I'm sure it's available somewhere. It's just like a little goofy thing we did. Yes, it is. Oh, that's uh, awesome. <laughs> if you look up Ray Harryhausen birthday with uh, myself uh-huh. or, or Sinbad, you'll find it. It's a little Medusa singing happy birthday, and I introduce her. So <laughs> uh, we did a lot of stuff to kind of like try to bring his spirits up. And um, anyway, so yes, we were all inspired by his work, and it should be celebrated. Well, it's nice to know that 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 near the end there, he he was able to see that there are people who yes. still were going for what he really loved to do. Yes, I think that it probably bo- gave him a little boost uh, to know that he's not he wasn't forgotten, and all this other stuff that's that's taken over um, is not really like the end. It's it's you know it's the, everyone knows him, and he's basically the godfather of all VFX. So um, we all respect him. That's right. On that note, I think we should wrap this up. I want to thank you for uh, coming on to talk about your film, Sanbad. <laughs> Is that bad? <laughs> no, that's good. That was good, Sanbad. The Fifth Voyage, or as many people will more easily, readily probably recognize, uh, Sinbad, The Fifth Voyage, uh, which has had a few uh, theatrical runs, as well as coming out very soon on DVD, Blu-ray, v- VOD, and all that. I will post dates uh, any nearby as I see them online for any the- theatrical uh, presentations, but look out for it 
on uh, DVD Blu-ray. Do you have a release date? The <laughs> special edition VOD version is the best version. Okay. And that is going to be hitting uh, everywhere December 2nd. So if you're on, I don't care if you're on Dish, the Direct, Time Warner, Comcast, whatever you're on in, in the U.S., Canada, uh, and then later in the year in the U.K., it will be available. And it's the final premiere edition with a nice color grade and everything. So I would uh, advise everyone to watch it. So VOD December 2nd. Correct. We spent four years on it, and uh, we have other stuff we want we want to bring to the uh, to the table, and we might even have uh, fans get involved. So we might even do some kind of a, I don't know some, we might do some kind of fan situation with other projects. So um, this would really help us uh, to get the word out and and help help our profile so that we can continue to do what we love to do. Excellent. How can people find your production company? Well, SinbadTheMovie.com, mm-hmm. or they can go to our the, the Facebook is where we kind of like everything kind of seems to be extended because we have like sixty two thousand fans. Right on. So excellent. And and uh, they can expect the, everything to start from there. So I would just find the Sinbad the Fifth Voice Facebook page. Can't miss it. It's the only one with that many fans. So um, and then from there they can get all the information. And our giant flick is connected to that. My own a new page that we just started to connect with the fans uh, is connected from that. Uh, mine personal everything is there. Well, I'll link, uh, I'll link to the Facebook page on the episode notes for this episode. And look cool. for it, the all-new uh, Sinbad, The Fifth Voyage, four years in the making. And everyone who wants practical effects and yearns for the films of yesteryear are really going to have fun with it. Thanks, Miguel. Thank you so much. Have a great night. You too. I look forward to talking to you again. Indeed. Well, that about does it for this 125th episode, which I haven't had a chance to say yet, uh, is the first episode that we're going with the new name, the Horrible Imaginings Podcast, or Horrible Imaginings The Podcast. We were formerly the Monster Island Resort, so any of you Monster Island Resort fans out there, this is just the same show under a different name, under the name of the film festival, which has slowly crept and started taking over my entire life. But I still want to use this as a platform to look deeper into these films as well as the uh, art and literature around them. Because otherwise, why am I doing what I'm doing? Why do they keep getting made? Why do we watch them? What's their import? This is the place where we can talk about that. The composer of my new music is Eric Elick. You can find his work on ericelick.com. I hope you enjoyed this particular episode. Uh, remember that the film we're talking about, Sinbad the Fifth Voyage, is on VOD starting next week on December 2nd. And um, this is Thanksgiving of 2014, so I want to wish everybody out there listening a very, very happy Thanksgiving. I hope you're enjoying your time with friends and family and filling your bellies. If you're listening from another country, you have a great day. Anyway, if you are in San Diego... We are continuing to have lots of great events coming up. The next big day is December 6th. On December 6th, we're going to start off at 7 p.m. over at the Digital Gym Cinema on 2921 El Cajon Boulevard here in San Diego, where we're going to feature a double feature of Mexican noir films. Yes, noir, classic noir from Mexico. After those films, we are going to head over to the Ken Cinema, our historic Ken Cinema, where we're going to do a midnight, one-night-only special engagement of a documentary called The Search for Wang Wang. And we're going to have the director of that documentary with us to introduce and Q&A the film 
all the way from Australia. This is a great opportunity. For those of you who don't know, Weng Weng is a Filipino action star from the late 70s and early 80s. Uh, what made him interesting to people at the time was that he was only two foot nine, so he was a very tiny person who starred in um, most famous for a series of spoofs of James Bond, so he was a teeny tiny spy. Uh, the films, of course, were uh, potentially offensive, exploitative, and, and unfortunately poor Wang Wang himself as a person was exploited by the producers of that film. Uh, this documentary attempts to look at his life, find out what happened to Wang Wang, and um, give him a little bit more of a respectful look as a human being. Uh, and it's a great documentary. It's very interesting. I hope that if you're in San Diego, you can join us on December 6th, starting at around 11.45 p.m. at the Ken Cinema to really learn something new about Wang Wang. And not only Wang Wang, the film really looks at 30 years of Filipino pop culture and the film industry in the Philippines, which is an extremely interesting story in and of itself. The director, Andrew Leivold, again, will be there. Um, he will be here on the Horrible Imaginings podcast, again, formerly Monster Island Resort podcast, uh, he's joining me to talk about his documentary and his seven-year experience making the documentary. You can hear that online on Wednesday the 3rd. That will be online on Wednesday, December 3rd. And also, he's taking the film on tour, a North American tour around the U.S. and Canada. So do a search for the search for Wang Wang to see if it's coming to a city near you with director Andrew Leivold in attendance. It is well worth your time. But uh, I think we've talked your ear off enough. I hope you enjoyed your time here at the all-new rebranded Horrible Imaginings, the podcast. And we'll join us for our next episode, episode 126, with Andrew Leivold, director of The Search for Wang Wang. Until next time, stay scared, everybody. My advisors have told me that you were a man of fantastical powers, and they did not exaggerate. Sanbad, we have plenty of gold and jewels. What is so special about this amulet? It's going to be my wedding gift to the princess. He is called the White Deep. He is a dark wizard. Who drinks the souls of the innocent and thrives on their energy. My spies have told me that you have been meeting with my daughter in secret. What your mind wants to see. Most men find it all together. together. delight to all who see it.